0: Well, good morning and welcome to everyone here and those joining us uh, with our online campus and our Bush Lake campus as well. It's so great to be together. My name is Zach and I have the joy of serving here as the multi-site pastor, as well as the Bush Lake campus pastor. And today we are wrapping up our sermon series on heaven. But before we dive into our message, I just wanna take a a brief moment and pause and acknowledge the events over this weekend. Uh, Yesterday was the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And I'm sure for those of us who were alive uh, that day, we remember where we were in that moment. I know as a young boy, I remember seeing the, the shots and the videos on the television. And, and I re- remember how impacted by that moment and that day uh, I still am today. I, I'm reminded of how in that moment of uncertainty, we saw so much boldness of people running not from the building, but towards the building Uh, We saw a moment of just fear that resulted in unity amongst our nation. And so we just invite you, may we never forget what happened that day. And so with that said, would you please join me as we unite our hearts in prayer? Father, we thank you and praise you so much that you are God who is present in all things. We thank you for the many men and women, the first responders, those who served and those who even gave up their lives to save complete and total strangers. We thank you, Lord, for the many men and women who sacrificed so much to secure our freedom as a country. And we remember the men and women lost in that tragic day. And so, God, we are thankful for your presence through it all. And may we never forget. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to heal our land, but also that you will heal our world. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we do conclude our sermon series on heaven. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at topics such as, what will heaven look like? We've looked at relationships. What will relationships be like in heaven? And then we've even asked the question, uh, what will we do in heaven? And I encourage you uh, over the next several days, maybe even weeks, to go back because there's so much rich content that we have addressed over the last several Sundays And as we've done that and prepared for today, uh, I went back to Randy Alcorn's book. He wrote the book uh, titled Heaven. It's one of the great resources that we've referenced throughout. And Alcorn wrote a story that just really resonated with me for today. Uh, He told about a a time whenever there was a famed wedding singer. She sung at her friend's wedding. And as she departed the ceremony, they went to the reception place. And they were so excited as her and her husband arrived. They walked up to see what was before them. Uh, They saw the elegant banners and they could smell the main course uh, going through the air. Uh, they could see the waiters and waitresses walking around with hors d'oeuvres and champagne. They spared no expense at all. It certainly would be a phenomenal reception. And as she walked up to the door, the gentleman there at the door stopped her and asked, What is your name? And she responded. And he looked down at his list and he went through and he paused and he looked back and he said, Remind me, what was your name again? And she repeated it. He looked once more and he said, I'm sorry your name is not on the list. You can't come in. And she said, but we sang at the, at the ceremony. I, I've known the couple, I've known the bride since she was a little girl. We, we grew up together and he said, I'm sorry, if your name's not on the list, you can't come in. And at that moment he signaled for another person to come up and escorted them to a back stairwell where they walked down to the parking garage, got into their car and drove off. And it was in that moment that her husband turned to her and said, honey, What happened? And she simply responded, I forgot to RSVP. (laughs) Yeah, the pain, you all know this. She forgot to respond. That's never happened to any of us here, has it? Okay, no, probably not. But she forgot to respond. She forgot to RSVP. And it's a heartbreaking story to think about. Uh, But it's relevant because as we've talked about heaven, we've picked up on these questions like, what will heaven be like and look like? We can easily say God will spare no expense for what that reception and ceremony will be like. But that typically raises a question for us. And the question I want us to look at today is this, can we know we are going to heaven? Can we know that we are going to heaven? Can you and I know that we are going to heaven? And maybe we ask the question, what is the pathway? What is the bridge? Uh, What are the uh, the things that we have to say to get into heaven? Is there a certain handshake or a certain code that we have to to say? What, What does that look like? You know, maybe for some, you've even asked the question too. It's like, if I'm going to heaven, can I then maybe lose my way to heaven? Can I really have confidence and assurance for what's before us? And so I want to answer those questions today, and we're going to be looking at one verse. It comes from 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 13. And as we look at 1 John 5, 13, we'll see that there's really this relationship between belief and knowledge, that the two are closely connected together. As we answer that question, can we know we are going to heaven? But to give you a roadmap as we walk through 1 John five 13, we'll see three key points as it relates to belief. First of all, we'll see belief defined. How do we define belief? How do we put words around belief? Second, we'll look at the benefits of belief. Uh, what are the benefits? What are the positives to having belief? And then third, we'll look at the relationship between belief and knowledge. How do belief and knowledge interact with one another? We'll look at those three points as we dig into 1 John five thirteen. But let's just jump right into this idea of how can we define belief? Let's look at these words from John. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, within this one verse, we can see a word. The word is believe. I write these things to you who believe. Now, a lot of times we say you've got to have faith or you've got to have belief in Jesus, but we stop there and we kind of breeze through it. We don't always pause and say, what is belief exactly? How do we define Belief. Uh, Well, that's what I'm going to do here. And there's a Christian thinker by the name of R.C. Sproul uh, that said there are really three foundational elements to understanding faith and belief. And here's the cool part. Those three foundational elements, they're all in Latin. So you ready for a Latin lesson today? The very first part about faith or belief is the Latin word notitia. Say notitia. Yeah, y'all sound great. Notitia. What is notitia? Notitia. Well, notitia really has this idea of intellectual awareness. It's saying intellectually, I I know the data or the facts or the figures. And it's really important because uh, it goes back to really the the scientific method. The scientific method is all about making observations. It's looking at something. It's unpacking. It's digesting it. And this is important. Notitia is important as it relates to our faith. Because some people might say, oh, you know, I I have faith and it's a genuine faith, but I don't really back it up with with correct thinking or, or correct knowledge or intellect. Isn't it just enough to have genuine faith? Well, if we disregard that and we disregard the fact of having correct knowledge and correct intellect, we could say something like, well, the devil is God. And that's completely contrary to our biblical understanding of the person and work of God. So we've got to first begin with intellectual facts and data and knowledge. But after notitia comes the second pillar of faith, which is the word census. Say a census. Yeah, now you're, man, y'all are cooking today. All right, you get a little Latin. What is a census? So a census is moving to the next level to say, I've got intellectual uh, knowledge and awareness, but now a census means I have intellectual agreement as well. I'm agreeing with it in my mind. Okay, and here's why this is important. It means to verbalize it, to say, yes, this is true. Is it important for us to have intellectual agreement around who Jesus is and what he's done? Absolutely. Because another writer in the New Testament by the name of James, he wrote in James 2, he said, so you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe. And then he adds that little tagline, and they shudder. And I'm like, yeah, amen to that, James, let's go. <laughs> but do you think that the demons really want to believe and by believe agree with that intellectual knowledge? Absolutely not, right? They have the awareness, but they don't have the agreement behind it. And so a census means I have the knowledge, but I'm agreeing with the knowledge as well. But then the third pillar of faith is the word fiducia. Say fiducia. Yeah, there you have it. So fiducia essentially means to have trust. And it means to move it from our head to our hearts to having trust. And it means I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to play it at his feet or in his lap. I'm going to trust my life with him. And so if we were to put words around what is belief exactly, I think that we could ultimately say this. Belief bridges our head, our hands, and our heart. Okay, Uh, belief isn't just kind of intellectually in our head saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God, but it should connect into our whole being. In fact, I heard someone say once that most people miss heaven by six inches. What do you mean by that, Zach? They miss heaven by the six inches of connection between their head and their heart. Okay, it's not enough just to say that Jesus is fully God. It has to come to this point where we're trusting it with our hands and with our heart. Belief bridges all of who we are to say, I have faith and trust and belief. Now, let me illustrate this for you just for a moment. I've clearly got a a stool here on the stage. So if I was to run through these three pillars of belief, um, I could say, first of all, notitia. I look at this and I observe this stool. And and to me, you know, it looks like we've got some, uh, some type of wood or hard material on the top. There's metal legs. There's screws here at the bottom. I'm observing this stool. Uh, but then it, it takes a, another step for me to say, you know what, I'm going to bring all of that together into an agreement. And I'm going to say, this stool is sturdy, a census, intellectual assent, uh, an agreement. This stool is sturdy, but it takes a whole nother level for fiducia to take place. For me to say, you know what, I trust that this stool is sturdy enough to actually hold my weight. I had to look down to make sure I wasn't going to slide off the stool there. I've <laughs> been bad, all right? But see, that's what it means to not just have intellectual understanding to say this stool is made of metal and wood. And then it's not enough just to say this stool is an agreement. It's gonna be sturdy for me, but I have to take my trust and actually sit upon the stool. Uh, That's what it means whenever John says, I write these things to those who believe. That they have the faith, they have the trust in who Jesus is and what it is that he has done. Belief bridges our head, our hands, and our heart as well. That's belief defined. Okay, now the next question then is, well, then what are the benefits of belief? That leads us into our second point. But I wanna go back to this verse once again. First John 5, 13, it says these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is opening up and he's saying, you know what? I'm writing these things And it's believed that this verse right here could potentially be the thesis, the thematic verse of the entire letter that John is writing. And John has a purpose behind it. He's writing to this community, to these believers, because it's believed that there are false teachers sneaking into the church and spreading a false teaching and a false narrative. Now, the hard part is we can't kind of pull it out and say systematically, what is it exactly that these false teachers are, are teaching? But what we can do is we can pull out little verses that help us to understand it. In fact, John perhaps calls it out in 1 John 2, 22. He says these words, who is the liar? Okay, he's not pulling any punches, all right? He's saying, who is the liar? Who is this false teacher? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the father and the son. Okay, hang with me because I know that there's a a name in this verse that you're probably like, the radar's going off a little bit. Okay, it's talking about the Antichrist. I don't think that John is referring to the big bad of Revelation, but what he's saying is the person who denies Christ has a spirit, has has sort of a heart that's in alignment uh, with a spirit similar to the Antichrist. Uh, What it means is that these are people who are antagonistic or anti to the ways of Jesus. How do we know this? Because they're ultimately denying who Jesus is and they're denying what Jesus has done. But the fact of the matter is, this type of teaching wasn't just for the first century. This wasn't just for the community of faith that John was writing to, but this is still relevant today that we still have times whenever we're facing down who who really is Jesus. And if we have a hard time understanding who Jesus is, that can impact our confidence and our assurance in faith. So I think that what John is writing to is he's really going to elevate who Christ is. And then whenever we see who Christ is, that can give us confidence and assurance. Those two are closely tied together. So who is Jesus exactly? Uh, well, earlier in his letter, John addresses this in 1 John 2.2. 2. John says this, he, which is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now within this verse, there's one word that is really big and important. It's the word propitiation. I'm going to have you respond with me more time. Say propitiation. propitiation. Yeah, yeah. Propitiation. You get Latin and you get like a, a deep English language today training. What is propitiation? Okay, you're sitting around the water cooler tomorrow and you're like, hey, guess what? At church yesterday, this guy gave me a Latin lesson and then he also told me about propitiation. And they're going to respond and say, well, what is propitiation? I'm glad you asked. Here's what propitiation is. Propitiation means turning wrath into favor. Okay. It means turning wrath into favor. Now think about this. Our default position before God right now without Christ is that we are standing in a defaulted wrath filled position that we are separated and we are apart from God, that we are alienated. We're not in community and in relationship with God. And the thing about it is that we all strive and we you know, kind of wanna say, well, I wanna get back into right relationship with God and I wanna do this, that, or the other. But the reality is that Jesus is our propitiation or our atoning sacrifice. He makes us one again, he is the bridge. Let me illustrate how this works. Now, later today, I realized that there is a big game going on, okay? I'm from Texas originally, I'm not a Cowboys fan, so don't hold that against me, all right? there's a big game going on this afternoon between a couple teams. Imagine you're going to a friend's house to watch the game. And if you're a Vikings fan, the Packers game's on. So maybe you do something crazy, like you throw something at the television. I don't know. Just hypothetically. Okay, but say you break the television there for whatever reason, whether intentionally or accidentally. One of two things has to happen. There's a broken television there in the living room. And the first thing is you can pull out your wallet and you can pay back your friend, if they're a Packer fan, maybe that, that foe, okay, but maybe your friend, okay, to pay them back, or the second thing is they can take it out of their own bank account and pay it. Either way, there is something broken and fragmented and fractured, and there has to be atonement, there has to be propitiation to make things right, because you can bet that there's probably gonna be a little bit of wrath in that household when somebody wants to watch the game. So how do you turn wrath into favor? Jesus is our payment for that. And the reality is, where does he do it? He does it on the cross. You realize this, that you and I should have been on the cross, but yet we see that Jesus is the payment for us. And the reality of it as well is that it says here that he is a propitiation, not just for you, but for the whole world. That it doesn't just apply to us individually, but it applies to us collectively as a human race. That there is nothing that you or your neighbor or people around the world can do that will hinder or pause Jesus's love and grace extended to them. That's who Jesus is. He is our propitiation, he is our atoning sacrifice. But then that raises the next question, what is it then that is the benefit of belief? Uh, why then should I believe in Jesus as our propitiation? Uh, well, whenever we continue along in this passage uh, and in this book, uh, John talks about all of the benefits that will, will happen. And he says, you know, Jesus is going to give us a new identity. He's going to actually adopt us into his family. 1 John 3.1 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are! Exclamation mark. Uh, that now we have this new identity that we are brought into God's family because Jesus is the bridge that did just that to reunite and reconcile us. But then he goes on in 1 John 5. He says, everyone who believes, you can see that word there again, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Uh, You can see that no longer are we orphans, but now we are adopted. That really when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are now beloved sons and daughters of the most high God. And so if we want to put words around what are the benefits of belief, we could ultimately say this, belief births a new identity. Okay, belief births a new identity. And whenever we put our faith in Jesus, it's saying, you know what? The old is gone and the new has come. No longer are you defined by your past uh, missteps and hangups, but now you are defined by Jesus' grace. No longer are we orphans, but now we are beloved sons and daughters. No longer are we under wrath, but now because of Christ and his propitiation, we are under grace and favor. And so whenever we believe this, whenever we have this new identity birthed within us, we can have assurance that we are adopted into God's family. Now, how is it that adoption and being, uh, really receiving this new identity, how is it that that gives us confidence and assurance? Well, let me illustrate. A few years back, I had a conversation with a gal who wanted to step forward to be a member here at Westwood. And in our membership conversation, we ask a, a couple of theological questions, one of which goes along the lines of something like this. Do you believe that Jesus has made your eternity with him secure? And when she heard that question, she just paused and she kind of looked at us and she said, you know, I'm gonna be honest. I've always had a hard time with that statement, with that question. I just, th- thanks for your honesty. I said, I really appreciate it. Can we, can we continue the conversation? Can we dialogue about this a little bit? And she said, absolutely. And I said, you're a, you're a mom, correct? And she said, yes. And I said, you love your kids, don't you? She said, most days. No, I mean, she's like, I love my kids, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I love my kids. And I said, good, I know this because you're a good mom. And I said, is there anything your kids can do that would make them not your kids? She paused and she thought about it and she said, well, no. I said, that's the same of our assurance and our confidence that we have in Christ. Because when we think about adoption, there's nothing that you and I could have done that would have made us uh, really favorable to, to be adopted. Adoption only came out of the lavish love of God that he brought us into his family. As Jesus bridged that gap so that once we were separated, now we can be one again. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. And so what we ultimately see is the grace of God God poured out upon you and me and for the whole world that we can rest in. And so if we were to really put just a sub point around this, we could say this, our belief in who Jesus is and what he's done births within us a new identity, that we are now children of God. And that gives us so much hope. That gives us so much assurance, you know, because I think a lot of times our kids, you know, they fall, they mess up, they have missteps, and we want to coach them up, right? We want what's best for them, but those missteps, they don't make, it, make them any less our kids. And that's the same. Salvation and faith was given to us as a free gift from God. That's our confidence that we can have. So we've seen, first of all, that belief is defined as, as knowing and connecting our, our head, our hands and our hearts. But belief also has benefits that we are now children of God, that we have this new identity. But now let's look at this question. What is the relationship between belief and knowledge? How do these interact with one another? Once again, we go back to this verse. It says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John says, I'm writing these things. I've got a purpose in writing to them because I'm confronting false teaching. I'm writing to those of you who believe, who trust in your head, your hand, and your heart that Jesus is God. And I'm writing so that with the purpose in mind that you may know, that you may know you have eternal life because of what Christ has done. And so there is a relationship closely connected between believing and knowledge. And and how do these two interact well? We think about, once again, this definition. First of all, belief starts with knowing. It it begins with intellectually understanding who Jesus is and what it is that he has done. And then it moves into agreement that that we agree with Christ. That's why we come here uh, together and and we sing songs of worship because we're verbalizing it. And and sometimes we have uh, communal confessions of of who Jesus is. Uh, But then it means trusting in our hearts. It means connecting our head and our hearts together. And there's this intimate connection between knowledge and relationship that as we grow in our knowledge of people, we we grow in relationship with them. But the hard part about it is we don't have perfect unending knowledge right off the bat. And that's hard for all of us because I think that we live in a culture of instant gratification where it's like, I want all of the knowledge now. I want to know in perfect awareness who Jesus is or who that person is. But the reality is is that knowledge and belief interact with one another, that as we grow in knowledge, that will impact our belief. And as we grow in belief, that will impact our knowledge. In fact, I've got a diagram here that I'm gonna show you. It starts first of all with knowing and just growing in awareness of, of just understanding who Jesus is. And as we mentioned before, we're not gonna have perfect unending knowledge right off the bat. It begins with one little step. And as we grow a little bit in knowledge, that's gonna impact our belief. And as we take a little bit of a step in trust and belief in who Jesus is, guess what? That's gonna impact our knowledge even more. Uh, This is a cycle that progresses in our own life, in our journey, and in our faith. And so when we think about the relationship between belief and knowledge, we would say this, belief builds upon knowledge. And as belief builds upon knowledge, knowledge builds upon belief, which builds upon knowledge. Do you see how that works? The amazing part about all of this is that God isn't some far off God, but he's here with us now so that we might know him and trust him and believe in him. That we might have eternal life. So can we know that we have eternal life? I would ultimately say this. If you know Jesus, you know life. Okay, if you know Jesus, then you know life. That's where we have to land the plane on it. In fact, Jesus knew how important this was. And some of the final remarks that he shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed comes from John 13 and John 14. Uh, Peter goes to him, and says, Jesus, where, where are you going? And Jesus responds in John 13, he says, where I'm going, you can't come right now. And then in John 14, Jesus just says, okay, Peter, you know what? I, I'm going forward, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then later on he says, how do you get there? Well, I am the way, the truth and the life. If you know Jesus, you know life. And so as we think about this question, can I know I'm going to heaven? Well, I think about Warren Wiersbe, who wrote in his commentary, he said these words. He said, the life that is real is not built on the empty hopes or wishes. It's not based on human supposings. It is built on assurance or confidence. He says, as you read John's letter, you encounter the word, no, this word that we've looked at, this word, no, it occurs more than 30 times. No Christian if asked whether or not they are going to heaven needs to say, I hope so, or I think so. They need to have no doubt whatsoever. Because if we know Jesus, then we know life. And so when I think about this, I think that there are really two responses to confidence and assurance. I think, first of all, there are some of us here who have put our faith and put our trust in Jesus, but for whatever reason, we constantly come back and we're like, well, I just don't know. I don't know if I have that confidence or that assurance that I can hang my hat on, and that's okay. So what do we do then? I think that we need constant reminders of the assurance that is before us. I mean, we use this example of kids. I mean, our kids need reminding. Heck, as a husband, I need reminding, but let's stay on our kids for a moment. I need to remind my kids, take your plate to the sink. Remind them, make your beds each day, clean up your room, take your dirty clothes to the laundry. Uh, We need constant reminders, each and every one of us. Myself included. Reminded, man, my faith is built not on what I have done, but it's based on who Jesus is and what it is that he has done. And in fact, a quote that I come back to comes from Tim Keller. Uh, He says these words, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. So it's not just your faith, but rather it's the object of your faith that saves you. That's why it's so important for us to know who Jesus is, to intellectually agree to the fact that he is our atoning sacrifice. So some of us need constant reminders. We, we need to remember this. But then I think second, there's another group in here today uh, that you've never had a chance to respond. You've never had a chance to really know Jesus and you've never had a chance to respond to his love and to his grace. And much like we opened up in that illustration at the beginning, you didn't have a chance to respond to the invitation that is before you. But last week, Pastor Joel said, this is the amazing, beautiful part. Our God is a table setting God, that he sets a table for all of us. And there's always room at his table and he's inviting us into it. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, what you've said. There's nothing that hinders Jesus's love, grace, and the application of his sacrifice to your life. All that it looks like is just responding in prayer to his invitation. And I'm gonna do that for us in just a moment. But my hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is that as we walk from here, we will have the confidence, we will have the assurance of who Christ is and what he's done. And we can have the confidence in our faith for whatever is before us. Would you please stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice, to be our propitiation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, for those of us who forget, uh, please remind us, remind us of your love, remind us of our new and true identity, that because of belief in Jesus, we are now children of God, beloved sons and daughters, that our adoption gives us assurance. And we know, Lord, that there are some here today, here at Chan, at Bush Lake, watching online at our online campus that have never had a chance to respond. And so friends, if that's you, I want to give you the invitation to respond today to who Jesus is and what he's done. I invite you to respond in prayer, in your heart and in your mind. First of all, it begins with admitting, admitting our need for a savior, that our natural default position is one of wrath and separation and alienation from God. We admit that we need help. We admit that we need help. Jesus as the Savior of the world. And then it starts with belief, as we've said, not just intellectual awareness, but believing in our hearts, trusting that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, that he paid the penalty and the payment that we should have paid so that we might go freely. So friends, in your hearts, confess that. And then it means to commit and to say, Lord, I commit and I trust, I place my life in your hands. The things that I've tried, the things that I've worked through, they haven't merited much gain, but I look to you, the author and the perfecter of my faith. Help me to trust you in days that are hard and days that are long. Lord, for all of us, we pray that we can be reminded that we are now because of Christ's beloved children beloved sons and daughters of the most high God. And may that give us assurance. And so now may we respond and worship as we sing this hymn, blessed assurance for all that Jesus has done on our behalf. May it be heartfelt and a worshipful posture. We pray all this in the beautiful matchless name of Jesus by the power of the spirit and all God's people said, amen. amen.